This is the Isaac Hyde Show. I am your host, Lord Isaac, your Earl of Exceptionalism, your Marquis de Machismo, your Duke of Decisiveness. Half my brain dead from the drivel that comes out of the media, Hollywood, and the left these days, especially the Academy. Talent on loan from the great mover unmoved on condition of excellence. This is the Isaac Kite Show, the one and only, the only place where you can hear the truth, well, at least from my perspective. All right, so this episode is going to be Guadalcanal Part 2. Why does there need to be a Part 2? Because, of course, <laughs> I had so many things to say last time that I didn't get to say, so I'm going to say them this time. A uh, number of aspects I didn't get to go into. Now, we do these. I do these historical episodes to offer... Uh, strategic insight, uh, insights on ways of thinking, philosophies, uh, and of course, history, and a way to understand those who went before us, what they saw, what they did, and how we got where we are, right? This This is important stuff. So last time, I described the beginning of the Second World War from December 7th, 1941, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, up to the Battle of Guadalcanal to set up the strategic situation. A lot of people talk about Midway as a turning point, the Battle of Midway as a turning point uh, for the Second World War in the Pacific. But the reality is, even after that battle, the Japanese still had the upper hand and they could still have launched offensives. They still had the initiative in the war. Uh, After Guadalcanal, the initiative belonged entirely to the United States. It was our war to fight. All the battles took place at times and places of our choosing. Uh, We had the initiative. Right. The United States uh, had taken charge of the war effort, and it became uh, eminently clear to Japanese strategists and thinkers that, uh, and, and bureaucrats and leaders that uh, the war was not going to be won uh, in any way they, they could uh, uh, had conceived of before the war. Uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit about that time frame and then dive back into Guadalcanal and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about things on the ground and uh, also discuss uh, the suffering of the Marines who fought there and, and the Army soldiers uh, and the strategic position of Guadalcanal and, of course, uh, wrap up back at our, our decisive battle that I discussed last time uh, between Washington and Kirishima. There are a couple of things I wanted to add and, and go into. So, you know, when I want to say more, I'll just make another episode. After this, I may go ahead and make a third episode, uh, kind of an after Guadalcanal, and just go ahead and wrap up the Pacific War as a historical topic before I move on to another topic, because why not? Uh, There's a lot of great lessons and a lot of great things to be learned from the later part of the war uh, where America has the initiative and a lot of things Americans learned and Japanese people certainly learned. uh, And, uh, you know, the the horrors of war really come home to you uh, in that, you know, as that war came to an end. And again, uh, knowing after the Battle of Guadalcanal what the outcome was going to be, right, that the outcome wasn't really in doubt. Uh, there are there are wars where things go back and forth and you're not quite sure how it's going to go and uh, little surprises come up here and there. And, you know, you, you, you look at the situation at different times and you're like, oh, man, roll the dice. Right. Who knows who's going to win this round and uh, how the war is ultimately going to turn out? Well, in this case, uh, the the decision had been made. Uh, by the end of 1942. And this was also the case on the other side of the world. Uh, 1941, a little bit, you know, but would would show uh, how things were going to go a, a little bit. But uh, 1942 really sealed the fate of Nazi Germany. 
thank God. And uh, it became very clear that they weren't going to win. Uh, And 1943 was just a desperate attempt to stave off the inevitable and and from thereafter. So uh, this is is an interesting fact of war. And then you start to think, well, what did these leaders do? Right. Well, as Jordan Peterson likes to point out uh, in the famous uh, segment he has that's that's all over YouTube, if you go look it up, he talks about uh, how uh, Hitler seemed to know he was going to go. And so he escalated his evil. Right. He, he turned up the, the Holocaust, knowing that he was going to lose the war. He tried to cause as much havoc, cause as much destruction as he could before he went to the peoples that he perceived to be his enemies. Right. Meanwhile, the Japanese will turn inward and, and look at uh, how do how do we find some way to to salvage the situation? And even as things get so horribly bad in Japan, uh, they continue to to try to find some way to salvage the situation. They they think somehow there's going to be some some tactical victory on the battlefield that's going to give them the upper hand just long enough to negotiate some kind of reasonable end to the war. Um, and that's that's an issue. So that's the next episode. So there's your teaser for Guadalcanal after Guadalcanal, the part three. So let's talk about part two. So I've set up in the last episode our commanders, and this is really important because their personalities are absolutely crucial. On the American side, we now have Bull Halsey. Uh, Admiral Gormley was uh, depressed and overwhelmed and didn't have the uh, handle on the situation. Couldn't seem to be able to accomplish what he needed to accomplish, so Admiral Nimitz replaced him. He sacked him and put uh, William Bull Halsey in charge. And Halsey was known for being bullheaded and uh, brash and rash and for calling it how it is. It's interesting that he and and General MacArthur had such a great friendship with one another. Uh, They thought a lot alike. And it's funny because with egos like that, uh, so so great and so large in size, you would imagine that the two wouldn't have got on with each other. Uh, You know, one one imagines, for example, if Napoleon could have met Hannibal, how could those two have liked each other? I mean, the, the egos, God, they, you know, they take up the whole continent. We wouldn't have room for anyone else, just the two of them, right? So... Uh, you know, in World War II, of course, the, the biggest ego in the whole war uh, may have been that of, of General MacArthur. Uh, I'd have to say even Patton was second to him. So uh, we have Bull Halsey. He's very uh, go-getter. He's, he's out there. We're going we're gonna to whack them all. We've got we to gotta kill these guys. You know, we're going we're gonna to win this war. On the other side, we have Admiral Yamamoto Isoroku. I'll remind you with naming uh, conventions, the Japanese use the family name first, followed by the individual name. So family name Yamamoto, personal name Isoroku, right? So this is, this is how they do that. And in, in respect for their culture, uh, and because it annoys the snot out of me, I'm going to go with uh, the proper naming uh, culture, you know, with, the, with that. So Yamamoto Isoroku is a great strategist. And his challenge, of course, is that He's a little too good. <laughs> you look at this war and you almost wish he were on our side, although we had great naval strategists like uh, Chester Nimitz and Ray Spruance, and uh, also more on the tactical side, uh, men like Bull Halsey. Uh, but Halsey had to have a grasp of the strategic situation in order to be a good tactical commander as well, right? So you get, you get that there. Uh, but in any case, uh, you know, Yamamoto is fighting with a Navy and... 
this is the only navy he has, right? Japan is only going to build one aircraft carrier during the war. They're going to convert a couple of civilian ships and do a few others. But in terms of mainline aircraft carrier, they're only going to build one. And uh, they built two battleships that were completed early in the war, uh, Yamato and Musashi, the two super battleships, the giants I mentioned last time in passing. Uh, but uh, the third battleship, Shinano, is going to be nowhere near completion as they head toward the end of the war, and they don't even have the steel to finish her. So the Japanese decide instead to build a carrier deck on it and make it into an aircraft carrier. Uh, and it was sunk by a U.S. submarine uh, on its way to Tokyo Bay. So it didn't even, it didn't even get to see action in the war. Uh, but even as an aircraft carrier, it, it really didn't have the facilities for uh, providing proper uh, uh, flight storage and supply. So they were just going to have it as... Uh, you know, have their carriers farther back and they would launch aircraft and then they, those planes would land and refuel on Shinano and then go on from there. It basically is a range extender for aircraft rather than actual aircraft carrier. In any case, no battleships are coming. Uh, ultimately, no cruisers are coming. Uh, and he can't just build more ships. Meanwhile, on Bull Halsey's side, uh, the Two Ocean Navy Act passed in 1940, uh, Carl, Congressman Carl Vinson's bill, Right. There's a whole nother U.S. Navy coming. Right. That's doubling the size of the U.S. Navy. Uh, and then beyond that, since the war has started, Congress has authorized the construction of even more warships. Right. I mean, America is just going to build massively. Uh, it's not even it's not even comparable, not even funny. So uh, Bill Halsey has a whole new Navy coming in just about a year. At most. By 1944, the United States will have a completely different Navy. Uh, it will have rewritten all of its operational manuals and books. Uh, America will have learned all the terrible lessons of 1942 very well, and they will operate completely differently. Uh, we're talking about a time now when uh, after action reports that, that you look at from some of these battles are very detailed officers saying, hey, we had problems with the fighter direction officer He, you know, on the carrier. He couldn't uh, he couldn't give the right bearings to our fighters to go out there and fight the enemy. And then there was so much chatter on the line that no one could hear him giving orders uh, or directing fighters uh, against enemy craft that we could see on the radar. Right. And you see things like that. And you're like, wow, you know, there needs to be a uh, a way to handle that. Right. We got to keep the chatter down and find a way to, to receive those orders. Well, they would ultimately work out those kinds of issues. Some of the, the commanders who were early in the war as they went on would marvel at, you know, how things changed uh, by the end of the war, where, you know, when they went to launch aircraft, the entire fleet would turn into the wind. Right. Not just the aircraft carriers. And uh, everything functioned around the concept of aviation warfare. Right. Whereas at the beginning of the war, a lot of the battleship commanders were still there. A lot of admirals still thought in battleship terms, and they didn't really understand that aircraft carriers were to play a central role. And, of course, uh, so were submarines. Uh, so that's, that's another story for another time. I'm going to talk more about the submarine war in the after Guadalcanal, because at this point we're still in the stage of the war where the torpedoes are often duds. And uh, submarine commanders are just throwing their arms up in frustration because they'll fire torpedoes and get a perfect strike on an enemy warship and it won't explode. And, you know, Japanese ships are literally sailing into port with American torpedoes lodged in their hull uh, that did not explode. So that's <laughs> that's a oh, what a what a thing there. So that's uh, a point of, of just terrible frustration for. Uh, the Jap for the American submariners as they're fighting the Japanese. But ultimately, they'll get that problem fixed uh, late in 43, and, and that will 
change the the submarine warfare uh, issue, right? Okay, so back to uh, our our main focus here, Guadalcanal. So last time in my rush to get through to the battle, there were a number of factors I didn't discuss lighting, lining up with and, and leading up to the Battle of Guadalcanal, the, the infamous naval battle of Guadalcanal that took place on the night of the 14th to 15th of uh, 1942. Uh, one of the issues, of course, is the question of the battleships, right? Uh, I mentioned, of course, that Yamamoto has many battleships. Right, the aforementioned Yamato and Musashi, big, huge, massive battleships with uh, 18.1-inch guns, largest naval artillery ever mounted on a battleship. Uh, they're designed basically to slaughter America's standard battleships, the the class of uh, battleships with 12, 14-inch guns, and uh, just a few of them with uh, 8, 16-inch guns that don't have the range to match an 18-inch gun. The bigger the gun, more range you can get out of it. And, uh, you know, we'll never see that battle, so we'll never know how that would have played out. But these are huge battleships, and they're available, right? Uh, but uh, Yamamoto is, in this regard, where, where he, he's been very unorthodox, right? He's, he's played very unorthodox strategy up to this point, bombing Pearl Harbor uh, and uh, the, the attack at Midway, right? Now he does something very orthodox, uh, Iron Bottom Sound, the, the space of water that is between Guadalcanal and Tulagi, uh, this, um, this body of water is shallow, right? This is not the place for heavy draft warships like battleships. Battleships are thought of as deep sea combat vessels, right? They're designed to go out and fight the war out there, right? On the battlefield, the, the oceanic battlefield, the vast deep water uh, ocean. And uh, in so doing, Obviously, they're not designed for these shallow water environments, what we now refer to as literal combat zones. Uh, and we have entire classes of ships today dedicated to fighting in these zones, in the littoral zones close to uh, the shore, right? They're, they're providing support for ground forces, uh, some air cover, and uh, protection from uh, light enemy seagoing craft and such like that, but not designed for deep water combat ship to ship and that kind of thing, like our larger destroyers, cruisers, that kind of ship. Uh, so at this time, uh, the orthodox thinking in terms of the, the use of naval assets is that battleships are deep water combatants. Now, that said, obviously, uh, we've had the Congo-class battleships, Congo, Haruna, Kirishima, and Hiei, have been going down and bombarding Guadalcanal. So, Isaac, what gives? If there are deep water, well, why? Well, the Congo class were originally designed as battlecruisers. They were lighter than other Japanese battleships. They had lighter armor, and they had big guns. They have eight 14-inch guns, which were big in their time. But the idea was that they were faster, lighter battleships with big, heavy guns, uh, similar to battleship battlecruisers, let's just say, like the, the Hood, uh, Britain's... Uh, great battle cruiser, repulse ships like that. Big guns, light armor, heavier speed. Uh, the idea being to to be able to use the speed to outrun the heavy shells of enemy ships and provide support uh, for the big guns, the the heavy ships. Right. So uh, later on, these battleships were later upgraded with greater armor and returned to, or say, upgraded to a battleship status. They they put in the deck armor and. Uh, made these uh, 
more battleship-like than just battle cruisers. So these Congo-class ships, however, are still smaller and lighter. And so if you were going to send a ship bigger than a cruiser, but smaller than a big battleship like Yamato or Musashi or Nagato, you would send these Congo-class battleships. They're the, the heaviest light ships that Yamamoto has at his disposal. Meanwhile, on the U.S. side, assets are growing low, right? The United States has one aircraft carrier functioning in the area, right? Bull Halsey gets there, and what's he got? He's got the Enterprise uh, and the Hornet at, at that time. They went out, and they, they fought the Battle of Santa Cruz Islands, and now Hornet has been sunk. Enterprise has been damaged. Uh, Wasp has been sunk by torpedoes. Uh, Saratoga has been hit by another torpedo that damaged it. Uh, Yorktown was lost at Midway, Lexington at Coral Sea. So America is down to one aircraft carrier, USS Enterprise. She's damaged and leaking oil, right? Uh, that's that's the state she's in the in mid-November when we have this battle at uh, at Guadalcanal. Uh, she's escorted by destroyers, right? And uh, Halsey has sent his cruisers uh, for the infamous battle of Friday the 13th where on the night of the 13th to the 14th, his cruisers engage the Japanese fleet. And this time with the Kirishima and Hiei, the two big battleships. Uh, and the, the sailors know they're going up against battleships. Amazingly, just, I mean, after <laughs> blunder after blunder. So let's start with the blundering before we get to the, the sort of miraculous part of it. Uh, you know, the, the commander who's experienced is, is Admiral Scott. Right. Admiral Scott led the uh, U.S. forces at the Battle of Cape, Cape Esperance earlier on, uh, where the U.S. force, the cruiser force, acquitted itself well against Japanese cruisers that night and was able to damage them and, and do more, uh, cause more consternation, let's just say, among the Japanese forces than was done at the earlier disastrous Battle of Savo Island. Savo Island is a little island in the inlet between Tulagi and and Guadalcanal, it kind of rounds out Iron Bottom Sound. But uh, ships coming into Iron Bottom Sound either need to go north or south of Savo Island. And the Japanese forces came in just south of Savo Island, made a loop around the island, sinking every allied ship they came in contact with, and then uh, fled out the uh, to the north, right? And then we lost, you know, four cruisers and terrible damage done to the U.S. and Australian fleet there. And that was just... You know, that was a disaster. Well, at Cape Esperance, uh, Admiral Scott does a better job. You know, he's able to defend the the Iron Bottom Sound a little bit better. Well, now uh, the commander of the fleet is Admiral Callahan, who's just a little bit senior to Scott. So by naval tradition, he's in command. But he doesn't know what Scott knows. Uh, one of the reasons Admiral Scott was more successful is that he started to understand the radar. They had these new SG radar sets, so they can see the Japanese coming. But there's this fear. Oh, no, they could be friendly ships, or, oh, they might be our own. We don't want to shoot at them, this kind of thing. And curiously, the Japanese run into the same kinds of problems. Uh, the Japanese also are concerned about friendly fire. Uh, Admiral Abe, when he was killed <laughs> in one of these battles, uh, you know, complained. He's, he's saying, basically, he called them the idiots. He said, the idiots, they're our own ships and they're firing at us. He didn't understand he had engaged the American fleet. Uh, so in the Battle of Friday the 13th, there's this, uh, this setup. Admiral Callahan doesn't have the experience. He doesn't really know what he's doing, but uh, he's going to lead these cruisers into battle. And they don't 
fire the they don't fire their torpedoes when they could have the maximum impact. The destroyers ask for permission to fire. They're not given permission to fire when they have the ideal uh, firing situation. American forces were almost perfectly placed to cause maximum damage to the Japanese, but they didn't end up firing out of position. Somewhat by luck, they do end up opening fire on Japanese forces, uh, and they, they're they able to cause a lot more damage than you would think. Now, one of the, the issues that, that happens here is these are smaller 8-inch guns, 6-inch guns, 5-inch guns, but they're firing at such close range because it's dark that the shells are able to penetrate armor that is intended for larger shells, right? The general rule of thumb with battleships, for example, is that if you have 14-inch guns, your armor is sufficient to repel 14-inch shells, right? Uh, at least in theory. So they're fighting back and forth. Uh, again, these, these men in this battle, I mean, just think about this. These are cruisers that they're on. They're not heavily armored. They're designed for speed, right? Uh, a lot of times these 14-inch shells from these battleships go right through them. I mean, just right through the ship and out the other side. Uh, you know, it's like being in a, in a, you know, shooting a tin can. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If you've ever gone out shooting, it's like you, you shoot a, a, a soda can and you're just like, yep, went right through, right? And a lot of times that's what this uh, kind of combat is like. And they take these cruisers up against the battleships and the men inside them know they're going up against battleships. And still they're manning radar stations. Uh, they're communicating orders. They are working on the steam engines, maintaining uh, the piping. They're watching gauges. They're, uh, you know, checking headers. A header is a piping system. <laughs> it's Navy, Navy jargon. Okay, they're they're doing their jobs. They're they're assigned duties. Whatever it is that they're supposed to do. Medics are tending to the wounded. Right. This is what they're supposed to do, and they do it. Right. These aren't supermen. These aren't uh, people with injected with some kind of magic toughness serum uh you know they're not aliens from another planet okay these are men just like you and i uh a lot of them young uh the navy tends to be operated especially by a large number of young men with a few older men around who have stayed in the service who uh, serve as the the senior officers and uh senior enlisted men uh, your chiefs and your uh, petty officers, first class, and, and what have you. But most of these guys are young. We're talking about 18, 19, 20-year-olds, right? These are very young guys, and they're doing this job, right? They're staying focused on what they're doing, even as shells are falling all, falling all around them. Things are exploding. Ships are torn apart, uh, and they keep fighting. They keep doing their, their job. And you just have to think, you know, as you're in a gun turret or loading guns or as you're looking at a radar screen or as you're communicating, whatever your job is, watching gauges, that this battle is going on around you and you're just doing what you're supposed to do. So I live in a small town and there are times when I want to cruise across town and it's, it's a little too far to walk, but I'm not really up for getting in the car and driving all the way over. Well, it's times like that I like to get on my Unagi scooter and just scoot around. Also fun when the kids are out riding their bikes and I don't have to go through all the effort of pedaling a bike. I can just cruise around on my scooter. The Unagi scooter is the iPhone of scooters. High-tech, sleek finish, sharp looking. This is the scooter to cruise around in, whether you're in a small town like me or the big city. It has uh, motors on both wheels, plenty of horsepower. You get good speed out of it. Some people have gotten upwards of 16 miles an hour on these things. Uh, great for cruising around town, uh, decent range too. And you, when you're done with it, plug it in, recharge, and it's ready to go. Also, you can flip the handle down, and the whole thing becomes a convenient, carryable uh, object. You know, 
just take it like a suitcase into work with you or uh, wherever you're going. So Unagi scooters, fighting fires, right? You're, you're doing your job. And at the end of the day, you just hope that you survive because at the, the bigger questions of who won uh, often aren't even clear after these battles are fought. Uh, the larger strategic situation, it's not even clear if Yamamoto and Halsey know that. If they're even familiar with, you know, really understanding. It took months for the Japanese to really understand that Guadalcanal was the major battle, right? Whereas uh, Admiral King and Admiral Nimitz and the, the main leadership of the U.S. Navy understood very well that Guadalcanal was going to be very important. Keeping that airfield away from the Japanese, an airfield that could harass uh, Allied shipping deep into the Coral Sea, uh, on shipping lanes uh, to Australia could be cut or forced to take longer uh, trips all the way around the long extended range of Japanese bombers, two-engine bombers, that could be launched from that base at, on Guadalcanal. Well, now it's an American airfield, and we want to keep it that way. Because, of course, it, it gives America, at least during the day when airplanes can operate, uh, an advantage over the Japanese. So this is the strategic situation. In any case, these cruisers go up against, and they, they put up one hell of a fight uh, for cruisers. Okay, They so heavily damage the battleship Hiei that the Hiei cannot escape. Uh, it, it ends up limping along, and it's not able to get out of range of the fighters at Henderson Field by morning. And so as the morning arrives, the rest of the Japanese fleet is withdrawn. Uh, bombers and, and fighters from Henderson Field come up and they start dropping bombs and firing torpedoes and such at this, this ship. And then planes from Enterprise show up because Enterprise is still operating in the area. And now that it's daytime and uh, uh, Big E can put her planes in the air, they're out there bombarding the Japanese as well. So Hiei is being hit from all sides. The Japanese decide to scuttle her. And as I mentioned uh, in the last time, this was a ship that had carried the emperor. This was the pride of the Japanese Navy. Uh, this was a very, very important ship to them, and it was sunk. All right, Kirishima comes back, and, and it's taken a little bit of damage, but not too much. Damage to other ships, cruisers and destroyers in the fleet. So the Japanese are... Uh, in a little bit difficult situation here. They need to bombard the airfield. They need to get their battleships in there to blow holes in the airfield so that their uh, troops can take the airfield and they need to, to drive the Marines out. And they don't have any way to do that, right? They're going to have to send more ships to get in there. And Yamamoto figures if the Allies are using cruisers against his battleships that, uh, in all likelihood, probably... They don't have any other naval assets. He knows that they've blown holes in the American fleet. Now, the Japanese had this funny way during the war of sating themselves with lies, right? So they, they told themselves that uh, Kirishima had sunk three American battleships. Uh, excuse me, the, the Hiei and Kirishima had sunk three American battleships for the loss of Hiei. And that way they could say to themselves that, you know, Hiei had been lost. But they knew very well the ships they were up against were not battleships. Uh, these cruisers are shooting smaller caliber weapons. Meanwhile, on the U.S. side, none of these cruisers comes out unscathed. Uh, several of them have huge gaping holes in them. Uh, on one of them, a torpedo has blown the bow, <laughs> the, the hull of the bow, so that they have a huge chunk of the hull protruding from the, uh, the Portland, I believe. Uh, you know, the, the ship can't even navigate. It's spinning in circles as the sun rises. Uh, this is just, it's just a mess. So these cruisers 
kind of get their act together, if you will, and they start heading south. They need to go in for repairs. None of these ships is combat ready. On the way back, the cruiser, light cruiser Juno, will be torpedoed and uh, will be sunk. And the men aboard will be left behind. And this is one of the most controversial decisions of the war. Uh, sadly, both Admirals Callahan and Scott are killed on their bridges of two uh, respective ships. Those bridges are hit by Japanese fire, and both of them are dead. So there's no, none of, neither Admiral survived the battle to, uh, to write an after-action report. Uh, the sinking of the Juno is also important because there were a number of brothers aboard, the Sullivans, and uh, they would be honored uh, with the name of a ship. A destroyer was named the Sullivans. It's currently a museum in Buffalo, New York, if you ever want to go out there to see it. But losing uh, three brothers in one naval engagement uh, was a huge loss for one particular American family. And so uh, they, uh, they received the, their mother received a letter from President Roosevelt, and uh, they also were honored again with that uh, ship being named after the, uh, after the brothers. But uh, this is the time when they were lost aboard the Juno on their way back from Guadalcanal. So... This is where Halsey comes into this situation where he's got nothing left, right? Battleship North Carolina was damaged, uh, and it's headed back to Pearl Harbor. Uh, he has Washington and South Dakota now available. Uh, they're in the region. They've just arrived, but they, they're heavy water, deep draft battleships, right, with 9 16-inch guns, big battle wagons. They're not uh, shallow water combat vessels. That's a tricky situation. Uh, now... Just taking an aside here, okay, so I discussed a little bit. Why didn't Yamamoto, in the last episode, why didn't Yamamoto send more of his battleships, right? He's got Yamato and Musashi. He's got Nagato. Uh, at this point, he still has Mutsu. Uh, Mutsu, in 1943, will suffer uh, an explosion of its magazines in port. There'll be much debate. The Japanese thought it was sabotage. Some say it might have been an accident. In any case, the magazine blows up and sinks the, the battleship in port. Uh, Nagato and Mutsu have eight 16-inch guns, 16.1. They're, they're 410 millimeter, a little bit bigger than 16-inch. Uh, but they're still big guns. Uh, they're easily the match of the best uh, older American battleships. And even though, like Washington and South Dakota, have nine 16-inch guns, there's just one more than Nagato. Uh, so you're talking about Basically, even even numbers here, even odds between those kinds of ships. Uh, so, you know, why why not send one of these or two of these, right? Finish this battle off right. Again, battleships, these big battleships, not like the Congo and, and its sister ships, which are lighter battleships, you know, intended to be battle cruisers, but lighter battleships. In, in any case, why not send them? Well, you know, these are deep water assets, uh, but there's also another challenge, of course. If uh, one of these battleships should be sunk, if Nagato is sent in and then it's sunk, if Yamamoto sends in the Yamato or the Musashi, or both, uh, if one of them is sunk or seriously damaged, Japan cannot replace that ship, right? He needs those ships for a, a big battle somewhere else in his mind's eye. He can't afford to sacrifice them, right? They're, they're too important, Bull Halsey, on the other hand, doesn't have much choice. The battleships are all he has left. So let's discuss why he doesn't put other battleship assets, uh, why he doesn't have access to other battleships. Uh, at Pearl Harbor, 
there were large there were a large number of America's battleships were at Pearl Harbor when it was bombed, right? Battleship Row, uh, and you if you look at a map of Battleship Row, you'll see that uh, for the first two uh, ship lengths, there were two ships moored side by side, right? So you have Oklahoma on the outside and Maryland moored inside of Oklahoma. And you have West Virginia moored outside and Tennessee moored inside. And then Arizona, which had a service ship with an auxiliary, the Vestal, uh, docked up next to it. And then Nevada, straight behind Arizona there. California was over by Fort Island uh, in a different position. And the Pennsylvania was in dry dock uh, and, and there. So when the Japanese attacked, of course, they could torpedo Oklahoma, they could torpedo California, and they could torpedo West Virginia. But Maryland and Tennessee were inboard, right? You can't hit those ships with torpedoes, right? They're protected by the outboard ship. Uh, Arizona, of course, would take a bomb hit in its magazine. It blew up the magazine and, and sank the Arizona. So Arizona was sunk. Arizona's gone. It's still there on the bottom of the ocean to this day as a memorial. Uh, single greatest loss of life aboard ship up to that point in the U.S. Navy. Right, I had 1,100 men aboard. So you had this this terrible incident, this terrible event uh, there at Pearl Harbor. And Nevada gets underway, gets its steam up, and as they're headed out of the harbor, they're hit with a few bombs and torpedoes. But then uh, there starts to be this fear, well, if Nevada tries to sail out of the channel and the Japanese should sink her in the channel, then that would block the channel and, and deny the U.S. access to Pearl Harbor for however long it takes to raise the Nevada. So they decide to beach it instead. Uh, and California takes a bunch of torpedoes. So California, Oklahoma, and West Virginia are also sunk. Uh, West Virginia settles down on the bottom, uh, the shallow bottom of Pearl Harbor, uh, with its uh, superstructure and masts above the water. Oklahoma capsize. Uh, this is what we, what we call it in naval, naval jargon when a ship turns upside down. And its masts are dug into the mud, uh, kind of upside down in Pearl Harbor. Uh, California almost capsizes, but they attach some large cables to her and keep her from rolling over. So those three battleships are, are terribly damaged in this uh, at Pearl Harbor. Uh, Oklahoma would ultimately be raised, righted and, and raised, and they would determine that uh, she was too heavily damaged to be repaired. It really wasn't worth repairing her uh, at that point. Uh, West Virginia and California had a lot of damage. They were raised. They were taken back to California and refitted, but they wouldn't be available uh, for, you know, the years to come. It's going to take time to rebuild those. But Maryland and Tennessee were inboard. They took some damage, some bomb hits, but they were relatively easy to repair. So they went back to California for repairs. Pennsylvania was in dry dock, right? And uh, would uh, there would be a terrible fire there that actually destroyed the destroyer that was docked uh, in, the, in the dry dock in front of uh, Pennsylvania, but she's able to survive relatively unscathed, not especially heavily damaged. So, uh, and then there's Nevada, right, which is beach. So they're able to, to fix Nevada and, and get Nevada back. So Colorado, another one of the West Virginia, Colorado, Maryland class with the eight 16-inch guns, uh, Colorado was back in San Diego undergoing uh, refit. So the U.S. has the Colorado that's ready to sail right now, right? 1942, it's, it's ready to go. Maryland and Tennessee are pretty quick to repair, and Pennsylvania, that's four battleships, right? And you're sitting there and doing the math. Yeah, that's four battleships. And then West Virginia and California eventually will join the fleet, so that's, that's six. 
but they're not available right now. So we're back to four. Uh, then there are older battleships that are on the East Coast. Mississippi, Idaho, and New Mexico had been moved east. Well, they're able to come back, and so now we have three more. So there are seven battleships available. What's up with them, right? Uh, and then on top of that, there's some newer battleships, which I've discussed. North Carolina, Washington, the South Dakota, and its sister ship, the Massachusetts, are completed at this time. Uh, Massachusetts is being used in the Atlantic front. It's going to go with the men over to Casablanca in the invasion of French North Africa. You know, France had surrendered and uh, to the Germans and had become kind of a puppet state. And so one of the first moves the U.S. made was to invade northern Africa, the French colonies there, and take them over so that we could drive the Germans out of North Africa and Tunisia and uh, prevent the the Germans from having access to the resources in North Africa via Vichy France, which was the, the sort of collaborator French government. Uh, so Massachusetts is busy over there. And the older battleships like New York and Texas, which have 12, 14 inch guns and the Arkansas, which has 12, 12 inch guns. These battle wagons are so old and, and ancient that they just, they aren't really good for this kind of operation. So we have these battleships, but they're also gas guzzlers. Man, do these things suck oil like you wouldn't believe. And tankers, oil tankers, are in short supply. So at the moment, these big battle wagons, such as we have, the, the you know, four, five, six, seven of these that are available at late 1942, they're having to operate off the coast of California because they can uh, stop in port and refuel because there aren't enough tankers to go out and fuel these battleships in the field. They just take up too much fuel. The newer battleships like North Carolina, Washington, South Dakota, they are much more efficient in their fuel usage. And so it's easier to keep them fueled uh, in theater. Right. But these older battle wagons, they're heavy. They're slow. They burn a lot of oil. Right. So they're just not available. If you're familiar with the, the story of the tanker United States that refueled, uh, took aviation fuel to Malta uh, under attack constantly by German and Italian bombers, uh, just barely, <laughs> just barely stayed afloat long enough to, to pull into Malta and keep that island going. You, you understand that um, tankers were in short supply. Oil tankers were terribly short supply. So that we can't get those battleships out. And by the end of this, uh, as we get into December and January, there will be just enough tankers available that a couple of these battleships, uh, Maryland and Colorado in particular, are going to come down and be able to be at Guadalcanal. But by that time, the, the issue is already decided, right? Because it's about to be decided right now in the, the upcoming battle. So Halsey's only chips he has on the table are these two battleships, right? And uh, he also has something to go with those two battleships, with Washington and South Dakota, and that is Admiral Willis Ching Lee. Uh, Ching is his nickname. Uh, Ching Lee is a uh, battleship commander with an interesting past. I don't have time to go into, but he's the gunnery expert of the U.S. Navy. If anyone could, if you could find a situation in history where the right man or woman for the job is in the right place at the right time, this is it. Ching Lee is the greatest gunnery officer in the U.S. Navy, and now he's the admiral in command of these two battle wagons. I mean, he has them practicing night action, night firing, and target practice at night on the way to this particular battle, right? Uh, and, uh, and he's a great asset for them. 
Uh, and of course, uh, Halsey throws in four destroyers, the ones that just happen to have the most fuel that are escorting Enterprise, and they go into this conflict that night that I described in our, our last action, uh, the last episode. And this action, this battle, has incredible repercussions, right? The sinking of Kirishima by the Washington is huge, right? Uh, curiously, they should mention the Washington almost ran aground a couple of times. They risked running aground trying to escape uh, Iron Bottom Sound after the battle was over, uh, dodging torpedoes. The Japanese almost got her with torpedoes. Uh, again, reiterating that point about deep water warships, right? That these ships are not designed for this shallow water con combat, right? So. And just that that does seem to prove the point. If Yamato and Musashi had been down there with an even heavier draft than the Washington, you just have to wonder, would those ships have run aground? Anything is possible. Uh, certainly they would not have had any room to maneuver uh, in the shallow waters of the Iron Bottom Sound. So this is how this battle ends up unfolding. And <clears throat> I'm going to take a minute now to talk about the experience of the Marines on Guadalcanal. So the Marines at, at Guadalcanal are commanded by Alexander Vandergrift, a Marine general who's also a fascinating character. I'd recommend looking him up and uh, gathering more information if you would like to learn more about his particular contribution to the war. Uh, but he's a tough, gritty commander, kind of in-the-trenches kind of guy. Uh, his command post is uh, often bombed and attacked. Uh, at night, the Japanese risk night flight with, their, uh, with some flying boat aircraft from other islands trying to disrupt the operations at uh, Henderson Field and uh, psychological warfare, right? Keep the men from getting a good night's sleep. Uh, interestingly, when Admiral Halsey came to visit to see the situation on Guadalcanal, uh, he and Hendergrift had to go dive into uh, a shelter that night because they were bombed. And sure enough. So anyway, for the Marines that were there, uh, there was never enough food. When the Allies arrived, when the, the transport fleet arrived, it was in the middle of offloading supplies when the Battle of, uh, of Sabo Island took place and kind of scared the Navy away. And Admiral Fletcher took the carriers away. And so Admiral Turner, had no, who commanded the transport fleet, had no choice but to get his ships out of there too. Right? So you get this situation where the Marines are kind of left there. Now, thankfully, there's plenty of food that was there already. The Japanese had dropped off a bunch of food for their construction battalions who were building an airfield on the island of Guadalcanal, uh, again, to harass American shipping in the area. So uh, they had some supplies, but, you know, those are going to run short. And uh, they would, the, the transport ships would come and go at times when it was safe for them to do so. But as I've talked about, you know, several occasions, Japanese ships are sailing into Iron Bottom Sound at night and bombarding the shore. If there are transport ships there, they're going to sink them. So we're talking about quick action where a few transport ships are coming up. They're offloading as quickly as they can and then leaving before dark. Right. That's not the same thing as really supplying them. Uh, oftentimes, uh, B-17s from Espiritu Santo, uh, island a little farther south, uh, are flying in fuel for the aircraft. They're they're in five gallon drums. They're they're flying in these these fuel cans for uh, for the planes at Henderson Field so that they can continue operating. Just an amazing thing. 
these marines are putting up with tropical diseases like, like malaria, beriberi. Uh, they're putting up with diseases of filth like typhus. Uh, the fact is they're not very good sanitary conditions. They're sleeping in foxholes, little holes they've dug in the ground. There are centipedes, spiders, uh, snakes, alligators, like you, you name it. There's, uh, there's every kind of, of threat to them. Actually, I should say crocodiles, alligators. Not, you know, they're, they're these crocs that live in this part of the world, right? So they're, they're putting up with all of these kinds of uh, annoyances. The, least, uh, the less said of mosquitoes, the better, speaking of, uh, of malaria. So, you know, these guys are putting up with all this, all this crap. Let's just put it, put it straight up. Okay, they're being shot at all the time. And every so often, the Japanese make these insane bonsai charges, just thousands of men just charging at them on, on these ridges that make up kind of a U-shape around Henderson Field with the mountains beyond and uh, the, the lowlands east and west that uh, lead out to other parts of the island. The Japanese just come charging in just thousands at a time. And, you know, you can't necessarily stop these bonsai charges uh, uh, American units would exhaust their ammunition, you know, firing at these guys. And every now and then Japanese soldiers would be found behind the lines, uh, significantly behind the lines. So uh, just a horrible experience to, to have to fight in these kinds of conditions. Years ago, I saw the writing on the wall and moved out of California. Let me tell you, with the high cost of living, high taxes, high regulations, high crime, it was no place to run a business and certainly no place to raise children. Now with all the mandates and lockdowns, it's become unbearable. So if you're looking to make your way to a red state like I did and enjoy the, the breath of freedom that you get in the red state life, then I want you to call my friend Paul Chabot at Conservative Move, conservativemove.com. Paul and his... Uh, associates at Conservative Move help people get relocated from blue states to red states, whichever red state you're interested in moving to. Conservativemove.com or you can call 800-277-5487. 800-277-5487. Let Paul and the folks at Conservative Move get you set up in the breath of free air in red state America. And men developed uh, what would later be called the 2,000 yard stare. Right. This is a situation where they're, um, you know, you, you see so much trauma and you see so much combat that you just have the stare that looks like you're just staring off into, you know, the distance. They call the 2000 yard stare. Uh, and, you know, men are in that situation. I mean, they're not they're not thinking rational men like you and I or you know, people like you and I, they're in this situation. It's this horrible place. And these are the conditions that they're fighting in. The Navy will lose a lot more men in these battles. And you think about when some of these ships go down, they go down with thousands of men aboard, right? Uh, there's first, the first battle, naval battle, the Battle of Savo Island, uh, there's over 2,000 sailors who die in that first battle. That's more than twice the casualties uh, twice the deaths that the Marines will suffer in the whole Battle of Guadalcanal. Marines lose about 1,200. Uh, Savo Island uh, casualties, about 2,400. Right? And then that's this the first battle. Then there's the Battle of Cape Esperance. And there's, you know, Eastern Solomons. And there's uh, Santa Cruz Islands. And there's Battle of Friday the 13th. And there's the Battle of 
uh, Guadalcanal, the, the official naval battle of Guadalcanal, where the Washington sinks Kirishima. Right? So there's all this stuff. It's a terrible situation. But you think about these, the grit that these men had. Uh, yes, they were men from a tougher time. They grew up in the Depression, and uh, they, were, they were a little bit tougher people than we are today. But again, they're still human. They're still men, and they're still American men. So they're still a lot like us. Uh, they would much rather be back in the States at a, a hoedown or at a swing <laughs> swing dance club with a big band uh, having fun. Now, they sure as heck don't want to be out here in the middle of the Pacific in the heat and the bugs and all of these things fighting the Japanese uh, for this island that got this godforsaken island. I mean, if there ever was a godforsaken place. Now, as I, I did last time, let's turn the page over and talk about the Japanese. The Japanese name for Guadalcanal was Starvation Island, and I'm not going to go into great detail. Others have. If, you, if you're interested in learning more about this situation, uh, Dan Carlin talks a little bit about in his hardcore history and in his podcast about some of these, the, the grisly details in some of these battles. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the men, the Japanese men who go to this island, again, they're, I want to say they're men of a tougher time, but, you know, the, Japan is, is a country strangely similar to the United States in terms of it's much smaller but you know in terms of the kinds of geography and and uh the the topography of the land you have farmland you have mountains you have coastal sea you know coastal fishing villages you have farms you have big cities that are urban and and modern and metropolitan where you know men are wearing suits and uh women are wearing modern dresses uh, you know, you, you walk down the street in Tokyo and other than the fact that they're Japanese people, you could be forgiven for thinking yourself in a, in a modern Western city, right? Uh, you might as well be in London or in New York, right? It's very modern, very, uh, that, that, that sophistication. And, you know, this is where these guys come from. They come from this country and they're sent off to Guadalcanal where there is just no way to keep these men supplied. They even go to the step of trying to fill cans with like you know, these big fuel cans with food and then dump them off of ships so that they'll float in, in shore. And some of that arrives, but all too often it doesn't. <clears throat> and so these guys are, are not being fed. And you'll see if you read the accounts that, you know, they're Japanese officers who write down, you know, if a, if a man can if a man can't stand, he's he's got less than a day to live. If he can stand and walk a short distance, then he's got a, you know, a week to live and so on and so forth. And they're, they're counting out. They, they describe in very detail how they pick out the men who can still fight. Right. I mean, as horrible as the situation is for the American Marines and Army uh, there are a few army units there at this point. Later on, the army is going to take over uh, for the Marines. But at the moment, it's, it's still Vandergrift and the Marines who are, who are leading the operation here. And uh, these Japanese men are just they're just starving to death. One of the one of the things about America and, and even with the Marines who are there, they're in a, a terribly unfortunate situation. But we have this I want to say this cultural expectation that we just don't send our men out to die, right? We don't see our soldiers as fodder. Just send them out there to die, and after those guys have died, we'll see who else is left, and we'll go send them out to die. You know, we send our troops into battle to win, and we want them to be supplied and, and have ammunition and food, and ideally, we want 
most of them to come home. We recognize that some are going to die, but we want them to come home. When you look at America's history in warfare, we don't take the kinds of risks like this Guadalcanal operation is on the Japanese side, where we just dump 20,000 men on an island and then don't feed them. Right? That would be absolutely unacceptable to the American people. That's the kind of thing that could get a president, uh, force a president to resign, right? Uh, that's the kind of thing that can definitely cost a secretary of defense. What, what that office is called now. Back then, it was still called the Secretary of War, um, the War Department, right? So, you know, it, this could, this could, heads could roll, right? Generals and, and logisticians and admirals and people would, would, you know, they would not be able to keep their jobs if they allowed that kind of thing to happen. And yet the Japanese will do this over and over again, send their men to these, these hellish situations, ill-equipped, unprepared, and starving, and you just like, how can they do this? They are desperate and they have this imaginary idea, this sort of delusion. Let's just call it because it, it's almost it's like a mental illness. I want to say uh, of invincibility that somehow these men with their fighting spirit. Right. That, that they are going to go win because they believe very strongly in the emperor's uh, godhood in uh, Yamato Damashi, which is this uh, idea of like manifest destiny for Japan, that Japan will rule all of Asia. They're going to drive out the white devils, right? The, this is uh, something I'm going to talk about in the next episode, that this race hatred back and forth between Americans and Japanese. And it's mutual. It's very mutual. We're all much more familiar with race hatred here in the U.S. that Americans had this very racist uh, perception of the Japanese. Well, the Japanese had the same thing. Again, I'm going to talk about that more in the next episode uh, to, to give it full intellectual honesty and full coverage. But right now, I'm just going to mention it in passing. Uh, they think that somehow these men, through their toughness and their sheer will to win, are just going to go out and win this battle, right? So this is, this is their, their situation. And so obviously, if the Japanese can establish naval supremacy, they can start to supply their troops. And then you start to think about, okay, there are, you know, a few thousand Americans on the island, and they're like 20,000 Japanese. And then those Japanese start to get food and supplies and equipment and gun, you know, artillery cannons and things of that nature. Uh, they're going to start to be able to fight. And if they've cut off uh, naval access, America is not going to be able to resupply Henderson Field to the degree that's going to support American troops there, which then forces the situation. Does America go ahead and risk their withdrawal? What does defeat mean? Right? What is the grand strategic situation here that we're looking at? And, and back to this idea, don't start a battle you can't win. Don't start a war you can't win. And unfortunately, the Japanese already have. Okay. And, and now twice so, because they've also started a battle they can't win. Uh, what, what happens if the Japanese do win here? What happens if they prevail? What happens if they obtain naval supremacy and America has to withdraw, right? And then our situation on Guadalcanal becomes untenable. Somehow, magically, let's just say, South Dakota uh, took a, a beating at the Battle of, of Guadalcanal. It lost power. There were some errors in the, in the electrical uh, there, and then they just, you know, they got hit, they lost power, it's, it's a disaster, they got blasted. Uh, but the Washington is able to get out unscathed. What if Kirishima were able to maul the Washington, right? And instead of Kirishima being sunk, it's Washington that's out of action. Well, you know, now Kirishima and those cruisers and destroyers can come back the next night, and the next night, and the next night, 
right? And they can bombard Henderson Field, and they, there's no more U.S. naval assets, no more ships to send in. It's going to be months before other ships are repaired. Like I said, it's going to be late December before we even get other battleships in, right? Uh, before America is able to send its older battleships. And then these are older battleships, like Colorado and Maryland. They're these slow juggernauts that are heavy and... You know, they're, they're lucky to make 20 knots, but no, they're, they're more like, you know, 12, 15 knot ships. They're, they're very slow and they're, they've got big guns, but they're not built for night action. They're not built to withstand this kind of firepower, especially. I mean, this, this is modern. These are World War I battleships, honestly. And this is World War II, right? So this, this could be interesting to see how they might have, have engaged in this kind of combat, but they're not on the par with the Washington or the North Carolina, or the South Dakota, for example. Uh, so what happens if the Japanese win here? And this is kind of the saddest part of the strategic calculus, because if America loses at Guadalcanal, we don't lose the war, right? There's a whole new U.S. Navy coming. And there's a whole other avenue to Japan, I'm going to talk about a little bit more next time. There's this whole Central Pacific Corridor, rather than the South Pacific. In this case, the Japanese can harass our shipping to Australia and they can slow down our war effort in the area and, and annoy us severely with this airfield. If they get this airfield, they're definitely going to be a huge problem. But we can still bomb the airfield from uh, Espirito Santo, right, which is just a little bit farther south. And this this island is, um, you know, this it's it's within range for heavy bombers and, and for light bombers to attack. So we could bomb the airfield every day and kind of like we do later in the war, uh, a number of islands that we bypassed have what we call the milk run where, you know, they, they were subjected to almost daily bombings uh, by uh, American forces. Just fly out there, drop bombs on them just to, just to make sure that they couldn't repair anything or keep airfields in operation or whatever, right? Keep them pinned down. Uh, this this is still a bad situation for the Japanese. It would have been demoralizing for our forces. It probably would have cost Admiral King his job because he put his neck out for that operation. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's the end of the war, right? America could still come back and win. For the Japanese, however, uh, the losses they've already taken at this point, even if Kirishima had won that battle that night, the loss of Hiei, the loss of cruisers and destroyers, uh, this is this has already cost them a great deal ships they can't replace. They're already in a deep situation. Even if they win here, they still haven't got a means of winning the war. So this is a big problem. The biggest loss in this war, this battle, that people don't really seem to comprehend. But now we understand it better because now we've, we've after the war, we've analyzed, we've, we've been able to go through the nuts and bolts. Where the Japanese really lose is in aircraft and pilots. They lose so many aircraft trying to bomb Guadalcanal naval aircraft and uh, army aircraft. Uh, they lose so many carrier fighter planes, you know, the carrier planes in the Battle of Eastern Solomon and, and Santa Cruz Island, but also many of their carrier planes are sent down to uh, uh, down to Rabaul and, and their uh, airfield later on that they, they're able to build on Bougainville uh, to, uh, at, at Buna, to attack uh, American forces at Guadalcanal. And they lose a lot of these planes. Right. And they lose a lot of these pilots. They don't really have a system for recovering pilots. We try to recover down pilots. We have submarines. Our, our subs would go out and pick up down pilots whenever they could find them. Uh, destroyers would go out and sweep for them. Flying boats. A lot of the Catalina, PBY-5 Catalinas out there. They would go out and pick up our guys. We collect as many pilots as we could save them. And we have a number of 
pilots who in the war were shot down on several occasions and recovered. Uh, and curiously, uh, President George H.W. Bush was one of these pilots. He, he flew an Avenger in the Second World War. He was shot down and he was recovered. Right? He was able to come back. So this the Japanese didn't do. They lose a lot of planes. They lose a lot of pilots. So planes, pilots, warships, these are things the Japanese cannot replace. Meanwhile, the United States is turning these things out in numbers that are just unconscionable. Uh, by 1942, war production is up significantly as we're heading into 43. By 1945, the numbers of planes that the United States is going to turn out, it just, it's just asinine. I mean, you look at the numbers, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of planes. You can't, you can't top that. If you want to look at those numbers, uh, then I'm, I want to recommend a great book to you, The World Wars. Uh, this, this is by Victor Davis Hanson. Uh, he just goes into a lot of the statistics. He takes a very big picture, macro view of things, and I can't recommend that book too highly. Uh, he really goes into the, the numbers, and you start to look at this thing and, and talk about this war of systems, right? of fascism in Germany as a system. And also uh, the Japanese system, which is somewhat fascist. They, they modeled their system very much on Germany uh, and Britain uh, to a certain degree. But the British Empire, let's say, the, the bad side of the British, not so much the good. Okay, But at the same time, you know, they're, they're sort of a fascist state. These systems break down and they're not able to fight the, the free systems of uh, the United States. And uh, while the Soviet Union will struggle to, to win the war... Uh, they're going to receive a lot of help, material help, you know, including a million vehicles from the United States that are going to help them win the war. So uh, they're going to and food and, and a lot of other things. Right. So uh, America comes into this war and, you know, it's just the last straw. Like the day Pearl Harbor was bombed, that was the day the Axis lost the war completely uh, by by default. So here we are. Okay, so now let's let's talk just briefly before I go here. We're in the post-Guadalcanal Naval Battle of Guadalcanal time. We were late November, December. The Japanese are desperately trying to keep whatever supplies going to uh, their troops on Guadalcanal that they can. And you start to have to have these discussions between Admiral Yamamoto and the army commanders and... You know, there has to be this thought process that's going on at this time. And Admiral Ugaki, who kept a, a journal, a diary, talks about this a little bit. They start to realize that they've lost. And there's this discussion and nobody wants to take responsibility for it. But it's like, uh, we have to pull out. Like, we're going to have to withdraw what troops we can from Guadalcanal and, and get them out of there. Right. And they'll start to do this and, uh, as they get into January. By February 9th, there won't be any more Japanese forces on the island. It'll be completely secured for the Allies. And the Allies will spend, kind of reasonably, the reasonable next step, they'll spend 1943 moving up the, the Solomon's chain and up the coast of New Guinea. It just kind of makes sense that if Rabaul is the main Japanese base in the area, that you would just keep moving toward it so you can get bomb, you know, airfields within range of that base and, and bomb it and, and neutralize it, right? And Truk uh, up to the north in the Caroline Islands is the other sort of outward Japanese base. And if that could be neutralized, then, you know, we've kind of got their outer ring of defense broken, right? Uh, and that's going to be accomplished uh, by early 1944. So these are, these are things that are, that are in, the, in the works, right? 
Uh, but the the Japanese, even if they win at Guadalcanal, they haven't won the war and they haven't done much to the U.S. Uh, if the you know, and, and obviously we see what happens with the U.S. winning the war, winning the battle. We we gain the initiative. Now it's the U.S. who decides where we're going to attack. Uh, there are going to be a few minor naval actions back and forth. I think I mentioned last time Battle of Avella Lavella, which is going to be the last tactical Japanese victory on uh, for the Japanese Navy, uh, where they at night during a withdrawal from the island, they're ships fire off some torpedoes on their way out and sink several U.S. destroyers, and that's really their last victory, right? Uh, but for the most part, the Japanese Navy is going to withdraw from battle. They're going to leave battle to aircraft and to the fighting men on these islands that are being attacked, and they're going to back off. And the U.S. Navy and the Japanese Navy are not going to have any interaction with one another until the summer of 1944 when the U.S. attacks the Mariana Islands, which comes as something of a surprise to the Japanese. I'll talk about it in the next episode. Now, one thing that I want to reiterate here, like if you're interested in learning more about the history, look at the books, uh, look at the history, you know, read up on it. There are all these great books out there about Guadalcanal. But um, remember the personal side. You know, my grandfather fought in the war, uh, and it, it really brought... You know, that battlefield came home with him. The, the PTSD was really hard on our family. Uh, a lot of these men who fought, you know, the Americans went over there and they just, they saw things and did things and put up with things they never had to deal with before. So it was a very traumatic event. It wasn't great for the Japanese soldiers either, but they had a little bit better idea what they were getting into. American soldiers, on the other hand, just, and Marines, you know, they, they just saw a lot of things that, they just weren't prepared for. And, uh, you know, it was a really nasty situation. And American sailors as well. Uh, and, you know, this, these battles were a pretty horrible thing for us to go through. Why did they do all of that? Right? Why did these men go out and do that? Right? Now, in, in the moment, they were fighting for their the guy next to them and just trying to survive. But they did that for us. Okay? They helped us. They wanted to make sure there was freedom and opportunity that America was protected and, and not invaded and occupied, that the world, it wasn't so much a, a likelihood that America would be occupied, but that the world would not go in this, this sadistic direction of uh, fascism and dictatorship. I mean, you can just imagine if Japan had kept the Pacific and ultimately conquered China uh, and, and India. I mean, what a, what a nasty place that would have become uh, for all those people who would have been uh, part of this Japanese empire and would have suffered that oppression, right? At the same time, you know, you look at what's going on in Germany. I mean, this is great evil going on over there, right? What kind of world do we live in where, outs you know, the U.S. basically controls the Americas and, you know, Germany controls Europe and Japan controls Asia and, you know, there's, there's some back and forth between the remnants of the British Empire and the Germans over Africa. I mean, that's not a great world to live in. Uh, obviously, the world that emerges from the Second World War is much better. They did that to give a future to future generations. As always, uh, everyone has value. Everyone was made in the image of their creator. And you have value too, whether you know it or not.